From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. Zach, yeah. I don't know why I emphasize my name differently this time. Oh, you know, you got to mix things up. It's, yeah. I feel like, <laughs> you know, when, you, when you're in that, that sort of like lead off spot, it's like a different vibe than when you're just sort of following Adam. Like yes, it, it's a exactly. different, you kind of got to bring a different energy. Yeah. <laughs> not his I can, energy. No, I can't no bring Adam's can. energy. Never will be able to. You and me together. Still not there. <laughs> um, how's it been going? What have you been drinking? We, we, we're coming off of a holiday weekend or two. Yeah, it's been it's been a lot of uh, a lot of summery weather around here. Um, although actually, interestingly, so the the highlight for me is I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but my wife and I have this really interesting, I think to us, kind of fun tradition so before we even got engaged to say nothing of getting married, we had a whole conversation about, you know, kind of like, because we were, you know, we're these kind of people, I guess, about like, you know, my wife was pretty clear that she didn't want to sort of be proposed to in a like, uh, big showy way, okay. um, which I totally respect and, you know, I get, um, and in part of that conversation, we sort of talked about a lot of things. And she was like, you know, it was kind of a this sort of thing where she's like, you know, I also kind of she's like, you know, I feel like it's kind of weird that like the expectation is that like you get me something, i.e. a ring. And that's just like and the thing you get is like I say that I'll marry you, which like, you know, I get what well, you know, we're not going to get into the sort of gender politics of marriage, et cetera. But like I was like, sure, like you can get me something if you want. That's cool. And so what we, what she sort of slash we decided to do is she went to a, a wine shop where I was a somewhat frequent patron and also occasionally worked and worked with them to get like a case of wine that she, after we got engaged, she gave to me. And so we have been steadily drinking one bottle from it every year, um, usually on, but sometimes just kind of around the date of our engagement anniversary and so that came up uh, at the end of june and uh, because of schedules and stuff we had to kind of push the actual celebration into early july which uh, was nice so we had this this year was a bottle of uh 2012 oh it's a uh, mixed case it is a mixed case yeah Ah, yeah not just no 12 different bottles so um you know of all kinds well not all kinds of things you know wines that i liked and that ideally we would both enjoy together which so far we have of course and (laughs) um yeah so it was like the 2012 Pinot Noir from uh, Soder Vineyards in Oregon from the, the Mineral Springs Vineyard, which is very nice. And it was really fun for us because we got to take it out to dinner actually at uh, Palace Kitchen, which is a restaurant here in Seattle that uh, was part of the restaurant company I used to work for that had been closed since the pandemic and then quite recently reopened. So it was fun for us to get a chance to go out just the two of us and have a nice evening out and a special bottle of wine. And that was great. Nice. Yeah. And other than that, I think I've mostly just been drinking a lot of gin and tonics has been kind of a gin and tonic moment for me the summer of gin and tonics yeah there's to me like an ideal temperature for a gin and tonic like not that for the drink itself to be but for like the weather to be Mm -hmm. and to me like a gin and tonic is best between like 75 and 85 degrees like hotter than that and i don't want tonic yeah personally and colder than that like i mean the gin and tonic is a fine drink all the time but like i don't really start getting the like gin and tonic vibe until it gets a little above 75. So we've tell been in that your, sort of... Yeah, tell us about your gin and tonic. Well, you know, so far it's been pretty 
I've been sticking pretty down the middle with my with my choices. So my favorite gin for a gin and tonic is the Roku gin. Oh, yes. And I have been pouring that. I've also used a little bit of Sip Smith here and there. Although, again, the Roku just to me has like the right profile for what I want in a gin and tonic. And then mostly just uh, Fever Tree Tonic because that's the one I tend to have at home most of the time. And I have been sort of the, the one area where I play around a tiny bit is like if I garnish it slash how I garnish it, you know, often I have limes at home. So it will usually be like a lime wedge. But actually the the one that I did that was kind of fun for me was I put a a, pot, a star anise pot in recently. Oh. And that was kind of fun. Like you get a little bit of the flavor there. Um, just kind of working its way into the drink. But the truth, honestly, Joanna, is that my gin and tonics don't last all that long around mm-hmm. me. So like <laughs> any sort of added flavor from the, the star anise sort of <laughs> working its, its way into the drink. Did, I didn't probably give it enough time. Um, but, you know, that's not a bad problem. I can always make myself another. So True, true. How about you, Joanna? What have you been drinking? I've been drinking a lot, actually. Oh, good. Um, yeah. Back in full force. Love yes. to hear it. <laughs> So making a lot of gimlets mm. lately because they're delicious. They are. Everyone should drink more gimlets, I think. And also had tried some bottled Midori sours from On the Rocks. And I think it was my first Midori sour ever. Yeah. Interesting drink. Don't know. Kind of tastes like Gatorade. Don't know mm-hmm. that I would have them again. Have you ever had a Midori sour? I have. I had a weird phase in my like mid 20s where I was very interested in like a lot of what I would consider like, you know, kind of those, I don't know, 70s and 80s classic drinks. Mm-hmm. Um, so like made like Harvey Wallbangers and Midori yeah. Sours and um, Sex you know, on some the other Beach. Stuff and, yeah, that and um, God, there was another one, uh, an Amaretto Sour, that kind of stuff. Like, like it was just, like trying to understand a little bit as I got more interested in bartending, like what made these drinks popular so yeah no i have tried one but i can't claim it was a favorite (laughs) yeah um but that was really interesting also uh went to a local one of our local breweries finback and had some beer there um that's always fun and then had a really delicious skin contact sauvignon blanc that i got from um hannah at the office uh from slovenian winemaker bojan kobal and uh, it's it's Cobal Roots um, is the name of the wine, and that was really delicious. I can't, I, you know, I like skin contact wine. Can't say I've had a lot of skin contact Sauvignon Blanc, but this was really interesting and really bright and delicious. Um, so yeah, that, those were the the highlights from the last week. Excellent. Well, Joanna, I'm going to take the the lead here on our topic because it was my idea, sort of, and <laughs> prompted by. A sort of newsy item that is messy and we won't get too deep into the specifics of this, but basically kind of an ongoing lawsuit between Diageo um, and Sean Combs, a.k.a. was he Diddy now? Just Diddy? Diddy. I can't even keep track. I had a lot of names yeah. in my lifetime um, <laughs> around uh, his the brands that he had a partnership with Diageo and then Chirac and then De Leon Tequila. And again, there's a piece on the site that we'll link to if you want some of the specifics about the case. We're not going to really talk about it because it's still very much ongoing and we've seen some uh, disclosures from one side, but like there's a lot to still be adjudicated and just not something for us to talk about at this moment. But it did prompt this thought in me, which was we've talked a lot about how 
you know, celebrity brands in spirits and drinks in general are big business right now. They're more and more being launched all the time. And we've talked a lot about how that works and why it's appealing to spirits companies and why it might be appealing to celebrities. But we haven't really talked much directly about what might make it not just not work, but be perhaps messier than a failed product otherwise might be. And I want to just preface this by saying that, like, we're not, I'm not, we're not predicting the (laughs) demise of anything in particular here. I think this trend is likely to continue, but I do wonder if some of what comes out of this lawsuit will give some companies, whether it's Diageo themselves or others, a little bit of pause as they um, continue considering these partnerships and, you know, which celebrities they partner with and how that all works. So, Joanna, I feel like I want to ask you first, like, did this lawsuit or does this kind of situation make you think differently about some of these celebrity brands and how they might sort of fall apart? You know, I I don't know. Like you said, we've talked about these celebrity brands quite a bit and I feel like my, like my approach is pretty cynical. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. It just, I, I guess the assumption for people is that it's mutually beneficial and that's why celebrities will enter into these partnerships, right? But we do see, I mean, and and uh, we've seen it a lot more recently, the backlash that can come um, from the public when celebra- some celebrities decide to enter into these partnerships or peddle alcoholic beverages when they've kind of... Um, portrayed themselves as, uh, you know, not uh, (laughs) non-drinkers, I guess is the way to put it. Um, We've also seen, you know, how how this can go awry when I think for celebrity brands, there's a lot of hype put behind them. And then if the product doesn't meet those expectations, how that can kind of topple a brand. I'm thinking of cacti specifically. so, yeah, I think, you know, my approach has always been more suspicious of these brands than not. But um, but I would I would guess that a lot of um, consumers feel like having a celebrity attached to a brand is generally a positive thing. Yeah. So I think that the Travis Scott cacti example is one kind of evident way where it can go bad like the celebrity gets a bunch of bad pr and suddenly your brand is like oh now again as we've talked about before cacti had the additional problem of being disgusting oh i totally forgot about the the actual yeah the scandal um yeah yeah i forgot about that part okay well any any case (laughs) the point is like it's it was an apt point even if maybe you weren't totally aware of its complete aptness Mm -hmm. but yeah no there's there's definitely something about that that sort of obvious way where if the person who's associate with your brand who's the face of your brand gets in trouble or just does something that people don't like that can be bad for your brand i think that what we're seeing or may see in this specific case and might be interesting and instructive is that the other challenge for a drinks company is that in many cases the platform and the sort of megaphone that these celebrities have is even bigger than theirs and sure it does mean that you know, like I always thought immediately of, and it wasn't exactly the same thing because they were not brand partners or anything, but in, I think it was 06, maybe Jay-Z basically sort of launched a boycott of Cristal because the Louis Roder, um, kind of the head of Louis Roder had said some things that were you know, pretty racist, mm-hmm. or at least let's say were 
maybe pretty easy to perceive that way. And, you know, I don't know that it necessarily like tanks Crystal's business, but like it was, it got a lot of attention. It wasn't good for the brand. You know, the damage probably wasn't long lasting. And, you know, but he wasn't, he, he, he didn't have, yeah, he didn't have like a partnership with Crystal, right? No, this was no, just, no. A, it was this like was a just... commonly name checked <laughs> yes. thing in rap songs, including by Jay Z. And I mean, he was like, you know, his, the, like, uh, whatever it was the 4040 Club, I think the, the thing that he owned in Manhattan stopped serving it, you know, but again, it was more bad, about bad PR than it was yeah. about a, a, a partnership gone awry. But the point is that, like, when you, when your partner is someone who is very famous and has a lot of reach, if things go badly, you know, the brand, whether or not you retain ownership of the brand, the success of the brand might struggle because the person that you've partnered with might be very incentivized to, you know, talk trash about the brand or to, yep. you know, try or be very forthright about what, you know, they think is being is happened. And, and that I think is something where, you know, it's not the same as when a, when a spirits company either launches or acquires a brand, right? Because usually in that case, when it's not attached to a celebrity, either it's launched by the spirits company and they just, if it doesn't work or they decide to change it or they, you know, pitch it a specific market demo or something like that, like that's their business and no one really makes a big deal about it. Yeah. And if it's something they purchase and they purchase it from, you know, founders who are maybe people in the drinks industry in some fashion, but they're not celebrities in the conventional sense. Well, if those people are unhappy with the direction that the drinks company is taking it, they're just not going to get it they're not going to get a public hearing in the same way that a very famous person will. And that to me is, I think one of the pieces here where it's like, you know, a brand can fail for a lot of reasons, but it failing because the ostensible spokesperson for the brand turns against it is like, that's just a bad look. (laughs) Yeah, totally. You know, and, and maybe you just kind of accept that as the cost of doing business or one of the attendant risks to doing this kind of, branding and this kind of partnership but it does strike me as something that maybe some of these brands have not thought very carefully through because you know they're they're on the it's a little bit of a like well we're we are trying to capitalize on the reach and the fame of this person but what happens if they turn against us or we turn them against us but don't you think that they must consider that when they enter into these partnerships or pursue them I mean, I'm sure it gets discussed in in some sense, and, and I think that you know there's a there's an element of I'm sure you know again we'll see in this specific lawsuit you know there's contracts and there's all these kinds of things yeah. and probably there's a you know a, a stipulation that you know the product itself can't be disparaged even if the contract is violated or what I don't know I mean I'm not a lawyer definitely mm-hmm. not just married to one but <laughs> I do think that there is an element of you know, you see the celebrity, you even maybe see the brand that they are interested in creating or have already created. And you see it as like, that's just profit. And I think, again, because this is relatively new, again, we're not talking about a situation in some of these cases where the celebrity is the spokesperson. I mean, you and Adam and I have discussed this before about the distinction between, you know, we've hired this famous person to be the face of our brand, but they don't, it doesn't, it's not theirs in any tangible way and if they move on or we move on that's just kind of what happens in the spokesperson game versus a brand that they maybe helped create that they you know own a sizable stake of it does create a messier situation and we've seen like you know drinks companies do a lot of you know have a lot of messy court fights amongst one one another over these things i mean you think about the the fight going on with uh, over corona right now between uh constellation and oh my god i'm blanking on who else um 
was the and other what is beer yeah exactly <laughs> yeah um and you know again it's like we like to think about or we tend to assume that these huge multinationals are just like never caught off guard but i think they absolutely can be wrong-footed by things and sometimes the way that they you know the way that they might choose to pivot and market a product that without a famous person attached might be as i said before very innocuous might be viewed very differently by that famous person who then has a lot of runway to be like wait a second what's going on here i a i own part of this brand and b i will get front page news or at least you know i'll get column inches if i come out and say something about this in a way that just again that uh, some other random person who founded a company that was bought by diageo wouldn't yeah i mean i think also a big part of this is the level of involvement in the celebrity um and part of me wonders if you know these big companies have that expectation or if you know their preference is to have a celebrity partner who's less involved in you know the actual business and marketing not maybe not marketing but the actual like business and creation of the brands yeah i think the, there's a, it's a case by case thing i'm sure you're right and that there might be some celebrities who even are significant stakeholders in the brand who are kind of just like they're like hey you know as long as i get paid we're good right but um, i don't actually have any input into what yeah. what's going on because it's not their expertise or business yes. yeah and i think that that's where the the some of this stuff becomes interesting because you know it, it's one thing if the spirit producer or whatever is like hey we want to like modify this the recipe a little bit we want it to taste a little differently we think it will be more appealing if we do this or that and i think those cases yeah probably even the celebrities might to some extent defer to the experience of the people making those decisions but but again a lot of this certainly this controversy that we're talking about or that we're using as a jumping off point is a lot about how products were marketed not so much what the exact composition of the spirits were in right. most cases but that piece of it is, you know, something that celebrities are, I think, you know, who who is a bigger expert on marketing than someone whose basically whole existence is marketing? Yeah. Do you think that something like this will act as a deterrent for future partnerships, either from the celebrity point of view or from, like, the spirits conglomerate's point of view? I don't know about an actual deterrent. I mean, I think it's it would be fascinating to see if... There is maybe more, you know, in some of these, not that we would see any of these contracts unless there's a suit, but like, you know, is there different language put in here, you know, even right. more protective language put into on either side to kind of say, hey, like, this is exactly what we're doing here. And if this is not followed to the letter, this is breach of contract. Mm -hmm. I also think, but I do think that like, as we've talked about it, when we've talked about celebrity brands before, there's so much, you know, there's just so much energy in this segment and there's so much money behind it and so much belief in this way to whether it's, you know, prop up an existing product or create a new one whole cloth out of whole cloth. Like, I don't think it's going to stop happening. I don't even think Diageo is going to stop doing it to say nothing of the other big spirits conglomerates. I do think, though, that one thing that is going to be really interesting to see is, is there maybe a pendulum swing back towards a little bit more maybe of the sort of spokesperson model where the spirits mm. company attempts to retain a little more kind of, for lack of a better word, kind of like, you know, control over sure. the product 
and license to do with it as they will and prefers to return to a model where because in the end it's unclear to me you know from a sales perspective is it that's the celebrity being an owner or you know creative or creator really drive sales and i think we just don't have enough data points yet to really know the answer to that or can you sort of have the celebrity involved sort of get them get buy-in but but not give them the same kind of financial stake and the same kind of you know for lack of a better word claim to the product that you know and and i don't know that might be something that we see because i think you know a we're just kind of in a space where maybe the celebrity brand is you know celebrity spirits brands are we're reaching a little bit of market saturation anyhow and it might be a way for some of these companies to mitigate a little bit of risk to say like hey we we're happy to pay you gobs of money to talk about our product a lot to be the face of yeah. our product but it's our product and we're going to con- continue to control it and again you know celebrities are you know they, they see the dollar signs too and they understand that having an ownership stake means that when the thing succeeds you make a lot more money and that may be a point of ongoing contention and and uh you know negotiation which is fine i but i do think that maybe there will be at least a little more reticence to be like let's make you a sort of equal partner in this because then all of a sudden you very fairly can say well wait a second like i'm an equal partner in this what you're i don't agree with the decisions you're making in fact they run arguably contrary to the agreement we signed like what the fuck yeah Yeah, I don't know. I think it's super interesting. Uh, If you have thoughts about celebrity brands, please let us know. Podcasts at VinePair.com. If you have other topics you'd like us to discuss, please let us know. Otherwise, Zach, have a wonderful week, and I will talk to you on Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the VinePair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the VinePair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So... The Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.